row, and um, I just loved it. Of course, I was here. I was in. I was here yesterday for a meeting with a group of people, so I show up here a lot, although not in this class all that much. But it's really a treat to be here. So now I should bring the mic up a little bit. There we go. Okay. Let me know if that if that's not working. That's working better. Okay. As I as I drove in this morning, I noticed uh, I, I noticed the sign. It's there all the time. It says Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and um, because I I was thinking about I was plan, planning on talking about uh, uh, sila and ethical practice and precepts this morning. Um, it occurred to me, or what struck me was, it's the meditation center. It doesn't say the uh, the ethical practice center, no. Um, and or even the pre or the precept practice center. It's it's precept practice ethical practice sort of becomes an adjunct to the kind of work that we are doing in our meditation. But for the Buddha, it was actually uh, at the heart of the practice. If you look at the Eightfold Path that he. Um, described as the path of awakened beings, at least half of it is directly related to ethical practice. Intention, right intention, uh, sometimes translated as thought, but intention, uh, speech, action, and livelihood. That's four of the elements of the Eightfold Path. And what I'd like, I guess the general idea that I'd, I'd like to uh, um, work with this morning is that ethical practice and precept practice is not, not only not separate, it's an incredible uh, opportunity to extend practice off the cushion. Because the practice is really more about how you live your life walking around, even if you have a really devoted practice. And my wife had, before she got sick, she, she meditated twice a day, 45 minutes, two sittings. It didn't matter. Our daughter's wedding day didn't matter. You know. But even that is only a portion of the day. You know. And so the opportunities for ethical practice are um, huge, much, you know, much more time available for that kind of work. And you know, the, the elements, the Eightfold Path is in the service of the ending of, of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, the cessation of, of suffering, the ending of dissatisfaction that was the Buddha's, the Buddha's plan. Um, the Eightfold Path, it's, you know, it's described as a path. And I, I, I mean, that's, it's so common, it's hard not to use the phrase, but really it's a way of being that is a single way of being. It's just, it's like you don't take, you know, let's take a, take a basketball. You don't take a basketball and say the eightfold basketball, it's brown and it's about, hmm, somebody might know, but what, it's about <laughs> 16 inches across and it's made of rubber and it's got a lot of little, you know, dimply things on it and it's filled with air and pressure and I don't know whether it weighs about two pounds, that's the eightfold basketball. You know, but you you don't just say, well, I'll just I'll just play with the brown. 
<laughs> you know, and the and the Buddhist path isn't just meditation. And 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 the path is is the way of being. Uh, without without suffering, without dissatisfaction, it's the it's the manner of living that enables us to to overcome that. And I think that in our own in our own conditioning in the West, it's it's really often difficult to see that the precepts are like meditation. Because we we hear them and we hear commandments. In fact, I, I mean, I'm not a. I, I really am not. I don't think I could list all ten commandments. But I know there's one about not stealing and not killing, and um, not coveting your neighbor's wife. Isn't that in there? <laughs> and then there's uh, what's a f- false witness. So there's speech, you know, um, and so and. And a lot of people who find their way to a meditation center are fleeing some sort of, you know, moral um, authorities out there uh, of one kind or another. And so, so precept practice or ethical practice is not at the highest priority uh, for us. And and actually, meditation, you know generally feels pretty good, and uh, um, we like the results, and we, um, precept practice we sort of regard as, you know, in the same way we regard commandments, but, but precept practice and ethical practice is very different. You know, at the time of the Buddha, uh, um, morality was, was just about doing one's duty, one's responsibility, social responsibility according to one's caste, it was pretty ritualized. And so personal action was not, I mean the Buddha emphasized personal action and it was a huge change. But it wasn't a change based on, you know, someone's making a list and checking it twice and uh, not even so much about, you know, where your next incarnation is going to be, although that was important uh, for the Hindu side. The Buddha's Buddha's point was about uh, cultivating intention. And when you're dealing with a, a young child, you just say, don't hit. You don't try to get them to, you know, look inwardly and inspect the reactions of their own um, heart and motivation. And, I mean, you basically set some ground rules, commandments, and they're enforced somehow by you, if you're a parent or, you know. But that becomes the model, that there would be some external force, entity, you know, uh, leaving a coal in your stocking, a lump of coal in your stocking if you were bad. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, that, that's, um, that sort of carries over into the way we understand the precepts. Most of you, I, 
you know, some of you may not. Everybody familiar with the precepts? Anybody not know what I'm talking about when I talk about the precepts? You know, so we, this group does a, a once a month review of the precepts, but it's sort of relegated off to the, you know, the once a month early morning, and it's a smaller group. Uh, but it's really at the heart of the practice. Um, and it's not about a commandment. They're not about commandments. Even the notion that you could break a precept mm, makes it almost like a commandment. It's not a rule of behavior, and actually it's not a bright line rule um, as, it, as it comes to, it's not about being good. You know, often it's seen as about being good and doing the right thing. And, um, and it, it plugs into the traditional understanding of, of the Dharma in that if you, if you do the right thing and are good, then the next incarnation you won't be a cockroach in a cave in South America. You know, you'll, be, you'll have another shot at it. Um, but the Buddha was really talking about uh, using it, using the precepts as um, almost meditative devices in our walking around world. Um, in um, my son-in-law is an Ironman triathlete. And it, it's very impressive, you know. He, uh, of course, when you go to these events with these people, it's like there's just a gazillion people who are able to spend, you know, 15 hours. And you look around; it doesn't seem like a big deal. <laughs> but you know, um, and he 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 practices regularly before he goes to work. I go down and I sleep on the couch, and he's up at five in the morning. He goes out and he rides 50 miles on his bike. You know, he rides around Griffith Park and, you know, or he goes out running for, you know, two hours. And then he comes home and washes up and goes to work. It's his, it's his practice. You know, it's a, but if he doesn't do that one morning, it's not like he's broken anything. He just wasn't practicing that morning. He wasn't working that morning. When we think of ourselves as breaking a precept, we're understanding a precept as a rule that almost has a bright line behavioral marker. You know? um, and the question is whether we're going to practice the precepts or not. And practice, you know, we're not saying be good. We're not saying um, be ethical. We're saying cultivate ethical. If you say be good, then you're setting yourself up for judgment. The precepts are not, let I me mean, say another thing about the precepts, they're not about judgment. You know? And so they actually don't have, it's not about whether somebody else is breaking the precept, breaking the precept, or what, you know, there's, there's, there's not, it's not a, a, a rule of behavior, it's a, about a rule of intention, and it's not so much a rule, it's a, a something you take on as a practice for the purpose of helping to attenuate dukkha. Because the 
whole existence of the Eightfold Path is in the service of attenuation of dukkha and the end of dukkha. So precept practice and sila practice is about practice. You know, the Buddha was asked once, does everybody you teach uh, wind up awakened? And, and his response was, well, you know, do you know how to get from here to Gaia? And the guy said, yeah. He said, and if you gave people directions, would, would they be able to get there? Yeah. But would they get there? Well, only if they set out and went. And he said, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm providing some directions, but if you don't undertake them, you won't, you know, you're not, you're not going to um, see that much progress. Um, you know, precept practice and uh, ethical practice is where the, the whole Eightfold Path is integrated. It's integrated around this practice. Now, in order to practice sila, it requires mindfulness. You have to be aware of the situation. How often do you find things coming out of your mouth and you go, geez, I can't believe <laughs> you know, what, what, I, what I just said, you know, or what, I'm, or what I'm in the midst of saying. That's even scarier. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, how do I get out of this? You know, so it requires mindfulness and it requires wisdom or insight or, you know, right view, so that you know what you're seeing, what your, what your mindfulness is bringing to your attention. Um, and of course, you know, right view, wisdom, includes understanding the role of ethical practice and ethical contemplation. Um, You know, and all and speech, action, and livelihood are reflections of of intention, right intention, skillful intention, intention that's aimed at the attenuation of of dukkha. I like to. Th- I'm going to talk about the precepts individually uh, in this slide, but I like to think of them as like more like buoys in in a current. <coughs> Remember, I used to sail a lot on, in San Francisco Bay. I may have told this story to some of you before because I, I used to really like to sail. And the bay is pretty challenging because there's, the wind is pretty s- strong, and uh, particularly in the summer when it's hot in the Central Valley and that hot air rises and it just sucks the air off, out of the, off the ocean through the Golden Gate and it comes through really, really... Uh, and, and over, you know, currents and stuff. So it's, it's pretty challenging and pretty fun. But I remember one time, one particular time, I was sailing, um, heading out towards Angel Island from Berkeley, and look around and by myself, go, go below to do something, and, and came up, and there was a buoy that was just going right across the bow, maybe 20 feet ahead, and I thought, oh, wow, you know. Um, the buoy was not moving. My boat was moving. <laughs> you know. um, 
the buoy was just a marker for me to let me know. You, you're in the current of our lives. We often just don't even notice stuff that we're doing. And so the, 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 the precepts themselves, the particular practices that we, that we can take on, we can take them on or not. Uh, we take them on to, to, to our benefit. Um, they basically give us just a, an alert sign. You know, they're a marker. And they're tools for inquiry. They're not markers of, you know, this is good and that's bad, or this is right or that's wrong. They're tools for inquiry. Um, you can make up your own precepts. I'll talk about how they function as tools for inquiry, which is, and they function like the breath in meditation. You know? I mean, we, our minds drift, our behavior drifts, and then we become aware, and we can come back to contemplating what it means to, to be non-harming. As does uh, my granddaughter uh, got her first flu shot I, I don't know, a year or two ago when the, everybody was there was was it swine flu that we were last afraid of you know and she did not want that shot you know and I can't say that it was a pleasant experience for her you know and so inflicting unpleasant experience on someone harmful. The, the issue isn't whether causing physical pain to somebody is harmful. It's, in this case, the intention behind it, you know, what's underlying the action. And the precept, the first precept, which we, which we frequently translate or present to ourselves as non-harming, what does it mean in this particular case? Because our lives, there's, there's no same time, same station in our lives. It's not the, you know, we don't have, it's not cookie cutter experience. Every experience is unique, um, literally. I, I, I love how Robert Rauschenberg used to say, uh, you can never look at my paintings twice. And it's not because there have been some, you know, minor molecular changes in the chemistry of the pigment since you last saw it, but you've changed, at least you've seen the painting before, so you're seeing it a second time, everything. There's no cookie-cutter thing, so the, the idea is to use the precepts as, as a, a tool for inquiry. And for insight. You know, they're... they're um, the first precept actually is is um, is pretty interesting because it's translated in in a number of different ways. Panatipata is the is the Pali word, uh, and often it's translated just or presented just as "don't kill," which is a bright line behavior. Bright line, you can tell. You know, don't. What does that mean? Bright line. Oh, a bright line means the, you know. You've killed or you haven't killed, you can tell. 
It's, it's a bright line. It's, it either is or it isn't. You know, there's no gray. <clears throat> um, this is good and that is bad. Is that, you know, and we can see that in all kinds of things. You know, 25 miles an hour is a bright line speed limit. You know, um, you, I guess you can get a ticket for 26. I actually, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't get a get a get a um, a ticket, but I was I was driving along and I noticed all the cars were going just 65. And then there was I was in the right lane and I was going a little bit faster, and so I came up on them and there was a CHP that was in the left lane going 65. <laughs> and so I sort of thought, well, you know. Let's just see. So I, <laughs> so I was sort of like 66, 60s, and he started talking to me out of his loudspeaker. If you don't want to get a ticket, you know, I well, slow down. That's a bright line. <laughs> That's a bright line. So it's it's often presented as just don't kill. Um, but you know. The word, actually, panatipata, and, and that's probably a good base level for, for uh, morality training for some people, and young people, particularly children, don't hit, don't, you know, don't take what's not yours. I mean, those are, don't steal, those are, those are in effect, precepts. Get them to pay attention to that. But, but the word, the Pali word, panatipata, means to strike at. I ask Gil, what, what does this mean, literally? Because I, I have to ask somebody who actually learned Pali. <laughs> um, I took a couple swipes at it, but was never, never very good. Because um, that means to strike at. So for the purposes of training, the first, the first precept becomes for the purposes of training... I undertake the practice of not striking at other beings. Sometimes translated as not harming, but what we're doing is trying to cultivate, well, what is not striking at? When are we doing that? And are there times when it might be appropriate? You know, if you're at Virginia Tech and that guy is going through the, the hallways and he's shooting people and all of a sudden you discover your professor had a gun in his drawer, I mean, do you just say, well, I have to, or do you, or, you know, the purpose of the precepts is to attenuate suffering and to reduce suffering. What in this particular situation is the best way to do that? And it requires mindful attentiveness to what's going on, and it requires some wisdom understanding of the context. And most of the time we act without all the knowledge we would like to have, and we do the best we can. And we can watch our intention, and we can watch our behavior, observe it, notice what we do, And, you know, it's the inner game of the Dharma. 
It's like you hit the tennis ball a little too hard one time and it goes out of the court. You hit it not hard enough and it hits the net. I could never get it in the court on the other side. <laughs> I never could figure that out. But the idea is, you know, we're, we're doing an inner game here. Um, so it's not, there's just a bright line of don't kill, although it's sometimes the precepts are presented that way. Um, it requires some investigation on our part to take a look more deeply at our experience. And this, this occurs in every situation. Uh, you know, that we can do that. Um, the particular precept is, is aiming at the intentions that arise, that, the unskillful intentions of ill will. You know, this is a, you know, we, we all know greed, hatred, delusion, bad. You know, generosity, meta, compassion, good. But, you know, the idea is we, we can get lost in our own story and needs and find ourselves behaving in ways that aren't skillful. The idea to restrain ill will is what this first precept is aiming at. And each of these precepts is aiming at some part of the Buddha's teaching and it's part of us are learning to craft our own intentions by deepening our understanding. Because our intentions always flow from our understanding. So we want to deepen our understanding by noticing what's going on, noticing how we're responding, noticing the intention that we bring. Because our intention is part of the action. You know, sometimes people translate um, karma as action, but it includes the intention. Because the intention is, is you know, the mental, uh, mental action. So the precept, precepts are karmic in that sense. The second precept, Adinadana, which is aimed at restraining or at least bringing our attention to actions on, on, in the service of greed or desire, wanting. Now, I undertake the practice to not take what's not freely given. Often that's just translated as not stealing. And we feel, you know, we can sort of write that off and say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, but you know, if you use it as a, as a, as a kind of method of inquiry, is purchasing cheaper diamonds, a form of taking what's not freely given when they're blood diamonds, when they come to the marketplace as the result of you know, slavery and killing and the kinds of things that have gone on in, in uh, some of the uh, diamond mines. It's a matter of inquiry and just to look into what we're doing. It also includes you know, um, I was walking my, I walk my dog a lot and we walked by some tennis courts one evening as it was getting dark and I noticed somebody had left a tube of tennis balls. Well, my dog loves tennis balls. 
And of course, my first response was, Hi, tennis balls for my dog. <laughs> you know. Um, and there's lots of cultural finders, keepers, losers, weepers, you know. <laughs> it's out there. Uh, but what I noticed was, my, you know, just, just my, the impulse to grab those tennis balls, <laughs> you know. Um, people might have come back for them later. Um, or not. But the issue for me was to notice that impulse to grab them. You know, and to practice the restraint. Just, just, you know, I didn't need them. You know, I can afford tennis balls. <laughs> um, so I, but, but even so, the impulse arises. Well, what a great opportunity to look at your own stuff. It's just as good as when you're sitting on the cushion and, and it comes up, you know. Um, So the second one, which is, and, and they're, you know, taking what's not freely given, if there's a rope in the back of somebody's truck and somebody else is, is drowning in a canal, you don't go looking for the owner to ask permission. You take what's not freely given and throw the end to the person who needs help. The third precept is, is particularly striking because um, uh, it's translated uh, as, to, as restraining from sexual misconduct. And I can certainly understand the word kamesu means sensual and sexual, sensual misconduct as well. I understand how it how it sort of drifted towards uh, sexual misconduct because, you know, in, in the, the monastic orders, mostly you've got a lot of young men. Um, and the standard there is celibacy. And so it becomes, sexuality become the, becomes the focus, and there certainly is plenty of, <clears throat> there are plenty of examples of, of sexual energy, which is pretty powerful, leading people to do things that harm themselves or others. Plenty enough examples of that. But it's not the only thing. Um, sensual misconduct, one of, the, one of the things that we do in order to overcome the constancy of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, the, the aura of complaint that, that we live in, the things that are wrong, the things that are not quite right, is to seek, um, well, sensual, s sensual pleasures that sort of blot those things out. I was listening on NPR this morning. Maybe you heard the same story that foie gras is going to be illegal in California in July. You know what? You know, it's, it's going to become illegal. 
and people who are into the, you know, how great it tastes, are oblivious to or not caring about. This might, this could either be a first precept thing or a third precept thing. But you know, the 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 uh, the, the uh, birds that are stuffed, overstuffed, and effectively tortured in order to produce um, this particularly nice stuff. Um, That's a second precept too, not freely given by the goose. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're all, you know, the first time I ever took the precepts formally, taking the precepts, I always liked the, that verb in relation to them, was with, with uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he said, you know, you take the ones you want. If you take any of them, they're all going to creep in eventually. <laughs> You know? um, and so he, you know, there were people, we'd, it was a big ceremony and we stood and did full prostrations and, you know, it was a big deal. And people, you, if you were not going, I stood next to a guy who was saying, I've got a big wine cellar. You know, what do I, what do, I do about the fifth precept? Because for Thich Nhat Hanh, it's not a matter of heedlessness, it's a, a complete uh, uh, abstention from it. So he, but he, he just didn't take the fifth precept. Presumably at some point, who knows? Who knows? But, you know, it's, the, the idea is to, is to use what we can. Um, but sensual indulgence can't, I mean, it's the idea of looking for sense pleasures, to blot out the dukkha, and particularly without regard for the consequences. So the blood diamonds thing could also be... Um, uh, you know, third precept related. Sexuality is certainly certainly powerful enough to cause a lot of uh, a lot of dukkha for uh, for us all. But um, May is my allergy month. Um, so we're looking, we're looking towards, towards, you know, restraint. Musavada, which is the, the precept to refrain from false speech, is particularly interesting. Because, you know, I notice that my mouth is going, I'm barely even conscious. I mean, you know, it's, it's just talking, and it's expressive, and we're not objectively monitoring what we're saying. False speech is not particular. You know, it's not a matter of again. It's not a matter of right or wrong. I, I can I can give you examples of when speaking the truth could be harmful. The truth could be a weapon. You know, if the Nazis knock on the door and say, "Is Anne Frank here?" and you say, "Can't tell a lie," you know, would not be ethical. Would not be appropriate. Um, but there are people who draw bright lines, you know, and who say you don't tell a lie. And in that case, so in the case that you have to finesse the question. You know? And it's kind of a fundamentalist, a fundamentalist view. Um, but speech is incredibly subtle. And it can serve a lot of different functions. Now, is the expression of a judgment 
skillful speech. The idea here, right speech, is speech that does not enhance dukkha. It's speech that leads to the cessation of dukkha. That's why right speech or skillful speech or appropriate speech is in the Eightfold Path. It's there because it has to do with the ending of, of, uh, of dissatisfaction. So even the expression of a judgment might, you know, by setting a standard of right or wrong, that may be appropriate or maybe not. You know, this is a this is a an opportunity for inquiry. What is going on? What am I talking about? They're they're usually they're. It's usually said there. You know, there are four kinds of unskillful speech, and then I look around and I find a list of five. So they, there's um, false speech, speech that is intentionally, uh, that intentionally misrepresents. Um, and false speech, you know, in the scriptures the Buddha is very clear to, to, uh, to his son uh, that one who intentionally tells a lie is like an empty, you know, empty pot. But he was talking to an eight-year-old. You know. um, so false speech requires understanding the context, being mindful of your own intentions. Then there's um, malicious speech or judge malicious speech. Speech is that's intended to hurt or to harm. And, you know, sometimes you can't tell. It's, there's not an objective measure. I was um, talking with a friend who'd um, just been in a, uh, just recently just been it's in the DPP program. And when she would meet people, she would, uh, how did you come to be in DPP? What's DPP? Uh, it's a dedicated practitioner's program that oh. Spirit Rock maintains for um, uh, students who are a lo- well along in their practice and who want to deepen their practice through specific work, retreat work, and, and uh, uh, Dharma study. And it's a two-year, two-and-a-half-year program, and it involves people from around the country and a program of study. And she would ask, how did you come to be here? And she asked um, a woman of, when she, she encountered in the group a woman of color, and she said, how did you come to DPP? And the woman was insulted and thought that she was saying, how did you come to be in DPP? Mm. But, so, you know, you can't always, there's not an objective measure here for speech. You know, even your intention can be, can be, you know, pure-hearted. And it can be, um, can have consequences that, um, that we don't intend. Divisive speech, you know, which is, um, you know, judgmental speech intended to 
have one person think poorly about another. It's the kind of speech that we engage in frequently. You know, now sometimes it's helpful to think poorly about, you know, we're talking about your son doing a film and, um, you know, it's kind of hard to not see some of the the people who are engaged. I mean, they just sentenced Taylor to, what, 50 years for for war crimes. It's kind of hard not to... Uh, It's not. It's kind of hard to maintain compassion for him. And idle chatter. You know, idle chatter is interesting because what is idle chatter? You know, I guess it, you know almost anything. If you're in a silent retreat, you know, if you're but but you know, is elevator talk. You know, or weather talk, idle chatter. It could be, there could be some underlying reaching out, could be serving some, you know, opening uh, gesture. But, you know, I, I worked at, I, I worked with a, uh, a young man years ago in, in, uh, in Winnipeg. He was a, a Cree Indian, and he was, he was 18. Came into the office one day. I said, "Hi, Terry. How are you doing?" And he he just he just cringed. And then he said, "You know," he said, "My my people, that's an insult. If if you don't know me well enough to know already, it's none of your damn business." Mm-hmm. Oh. But he knew he recognized my intention, and. I respected his. I respected his uh, sensibilities after that. But sometimes, yeah. idle speech. How are you doing? That's you know. That's idle as idle as you can get. You know the check. I have that conversation with the checker at the supermarket. You know, but it it might not just be. I mean, what is idle? What is idle chatter? These are tools, like I say, these are tools for, for inquiry. And speech can be descriptive. You know, uh, that man is wearing pink. Or it can be judgmental. Men shouldn't wear pink. What is going on with the speech? Is it false? Usually, that's the standard. But the idea here is to, is to make a buoy, a marker, out of our speech and pay attention to how we're using it and what it's, you know, the function it's, it's fulfilling. And um, it becomes as much a mindfulness practice as following the breath. The last, the last one, which is... Um, Suramarya Majapamadatana, which uh, is translated as not using drugs and alcohol, it certainly it certainly brings up a, a lot of Puritanism. Um, 
uh, in Dharma circles, often, you know, people are very skittish about admitting to drinking wine, having a glass of wine on Sunday. Um, not to use drugs or alcohol that lead to heedlessness. But, you know, hospice includes making available drugs that enhance heedlessness. And it, you wouldn't consider that particularly precept-breaking. You know, the issue is you know, we've got, it's a, again, it's, a, it's an inquiry into your intentions, inquiry into the situation. So it draws on all the elements um, of the Avis, not just don't, don't, don't drink, you know. Although Thich Nhat Hanh makes that as a, as a uh, that's his, his translation, because he's, he's seen so much destruction from it. Well, the country saw so much destruction from it. It went, it, you don't get prohibition passed, you know, idly. You know, and we can hardly get anything passed now, but they, you know, <laughs> prohibition? Give me a break. You know. So we certainly know um, about heedlessness. But this is, but, you know, this is also about using um, about trying to deal with the, with the underlying dukkha in our lives. I mean, dukkha underlies dissatisfaction is in the cultural currents we swim in. I, you know, my experience anyway. You know, if you've got complaints about, about things and the way things are going, dissatisfaction. And one way to deal with that is to anesthetize ourselves somehow. And that can be done. I mean, I, I remember um, I remember a day, my worst ever day at work, coming home and being so unable to just deal with the turmoil and the upset, I went to a movie. I couldn't sit with it, I couldn't stand with it, I couldn't be with it, I couldn't eat with it, but I could go and, and I can tell you the movie it was long. I can go through. I mean, I was really <laughs> focused in. It didn't work. <laughs> but, you know, that was the same kind of effort to just obliterate. You know. So it's sort of the flip side of the third precept, which is dealing with this underlying tanha, this sense that, you know, we need more we need different, we need it, it's important, it's not critical. So it's sort of the, it's sort of the, the flip side of that. Now we can, we can make up our, our own precepts, and I found some of them to be very successful, a couple that I, that I do myself. One of them, um, when I was when I was in high school, my best friend was always, 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 always late. Never, 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 ever, never on time, and it just it drove me so crazy mm -hmm. um, that I just resolved I'm always going to be on time. So I'm always early, 
Yeah, and it's it's shaped because it's a it's it's a, a resolve that I made myself. It shifts my behavior. It's shifted my behavior <coughs> for you know fifty years. Um, I have been late. You know, I was got stuck on the Richmond Bridge once when I was trying to get here, and there was a wreck. Sometimes things happen. You can set a precept, um, you know, when it comes, you can set your own, you, you know, your own mini precepts about speech, for example. You can decide not to speak, not to speak negatively about anybody, not to, not to disparage anyone, not to engage, you can just decide that. I'm just, and see what happens. Just set that as a rule of training, just like, my son-in-law sets a rule of training, you know, 5.30 in the morning, he's out on the trail. And see what happens. You, can, you could um, decide to refrain from self-promotion. You know, self-promotion is very subtle. You know, and it's sometimes hard to restrain. <laughs> I've been in situations where it's been impossible for me to restrain at a particular moment. You know, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to tell him that I was the one. Just, you know, just, you know, sometimes you just can't. What a lesson to learn I didn't have control. You know, that's as deep a lesson as you can learn on the cushion. Wow. Now, what do you do in those situations? Shantideva is just great. Shantideva says, I just came across this the other day, sort of the default. He says, whenever I am eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause dispute, at all such times I should remain like a piece of wood. <laughs> You know, the Buddha set up set a pretty high standard. He was he talks about how before his awakening he he recognized that some of his actions were motivated by an intention that was for the benefit of himself and or others, and some that were intended not for the benefit of himself and or others. And he resolved by seeing that, noticing the difference in the intentions behind those things, he resolved not to act on behalf of any of those intentions which were not for the benefit of himself and or others. What a fabulous precept. How unbelievably difficult. But you could set that as a, as a, as a precept, as a guidance, as a meditation object and we come back to the precepts over and over again, like we come back to the breath. It's not something you can fail at. It's not something you can break. You know, we just continue to work on, on cultivating these things. You could, you could, you could make a precept. Uh, John Cage once, I, I was very lucky and managed to sit in a class with him. 
it's a music composition class. We did one one piece in John Cage style, so I didn't have to really understand chord structure. <laughs> Thank God. But he, he just a throwaway line in the class stuck with me. He said, "As a minimum ethic, do what you say you'll do." You could make that a precept. And then, when you say, yeah, I'll do that, and then you don't want to do it, you don't back out, because you've said you'll do it. It makes you very careful about what you agree to do. You know, it makes you very mindful of your intention and the context. So you can set, you can set these, these practice rules for yourself. Their purpose is insight into seeing yourself and your own, you know, your own processes, how they play out in these contexts, and deep and, and deepening our wisdom, our insight, which which crafts our intention. And this is most of the eightfold path. The 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 meditation elements, which are right mindfulness and right concentration, and effort, because. Wishing that you could do something is not the same thing as resolving to do it. I wish I could, you know, lose 20 pounds. I wish I could stop smoking. I wished I could stop smoking for years. And then one day I said, okay, I stopped, and it just happened, and, you know. So precept practice is really those and those those two those last two elements are essential mindfulness and concentration it's a meditation tool which teaches us to be able to notice what's going on to be observant of our own experience so we can live our life in the world without making things worse for ourselves or others I just like to to uh, now this isn't the Spirit Rock Precept Center, but for the Buddha, you know, ethical the ethical life was at the heart of his practice, of his teaching, and and I just think that it's really important to regard it all as part of the same process coming back to the precepts again and again. When we lose track of the breath, it's not like we have to slink off in shame. You know? And when we, when we absent-mindedly find ourselves not acting in accord with the precepts, it's, a, you know, it's an alert for us. It's a highlight, it's a mindfulness bell. I just like to urge the inclusion of, of precept and ethical practice as as much a part of our practice as the meditation practice, and to bring to bring it like the meditation practice. Use the use the precepts as as we use the breath in meditation in our you know as tools around what is going on, what am I doing, and bring more mindfulness. To our day to day.
thoughts, questions? Please. Um, when the Buddha talked about the precepts, did he talk about them in terms of a bright line, or did he see them as pretty, um, you know, open to interpretation? My understanding, and I, I can't say that I've read the entire Pali Canon, or even the majority of it, um, or probably even a hugely significant part of it. But, but they are, the, my understanding is that they were presented as rules of practice to, um, to people, rules of practice for his lay followers. And my interpretation is that they have to be in the service of the ending of dukkha, because that, that's their place on the Eightfold Path. In the Four Noble Truths, you know, it's, um, that's their role in the, the Four Noble Truths. And bright line, good, bad, yes, no, right, wrong, uh, are, are um, the tools of judgment. Yes, you meet it, no, you don't. This is all internal. It's about ending dukkha for ourselves and others by recognizing what, what leads to that. So I, I don't know um, that the Buddha um, described it quite this way in the, in the canon. Um, But he, you know, he, he, he said in, in the canon in some places, karma is intention. And most people still think karma is what happens to you, what goes around comes around. You know, um, the precepts in this sense become karmic because they're about cultivating your intention and about, uh, it's, it, it, karma becomes who you turn yourself into, not what kind of feedback you get from as a result of your behavior. Um, so it's my understanding, what I'm presenting is my understanding of how the, how, uh, the sila elements function in, in, the, in the Four Noble Truths, in the context of the Four Noble Truths. You know, um, telling the Nazis that Anne Frank is up in the attic behind the fake bookcase because it's not false speech doesn't make it right speech and doesn't lead to the end of suffering. So I think you've got to regard it as it's just not a bright line. You know, I have a dear friend who's been doing a lot of hospice work and she's a, she's a, uh, a Dharma practitioner and she was working with a lady who was within hours of, of, of the end for her and the woman said to her, I know that you're a Buddhist, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And Lynn said, of course. And the woman just relaxed. You know, in, the, in the context, you know, she said, good. You know, and it, was, it gave her peace. I th and you know the Buddha was interested in dukkha and the end of dukkha. So, the precepts are about dukkha and the end of dukkha in your in your walk around day to day. Anything else?
Thank you guys for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.